Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and we are back at it again with some more Pauline eschatology. Guys, I am very excited that we have made it through so much of this content that we have come through together with. We have gone over the four major views. We've looked at heaven, hell, death. Um, We've looked at world eschatology. We have looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we have covered a ton of ground in the last, uh, this I think will be the 26th episode in this series. So 26 weeks we have covered eschatology. We have done a lot of work and it's not even remotely exhaustive. And by that, I mean, you can go and continue your uh, searching and you can find books that are completely dedicated to any of the four views that you pick up on. Uh, I know some of you are post-millennialist. I know some of you might be pre-millennialist. Some of you are amillennialist. Whatever your cup of tea is, there are plenty of books written that will be a biblical defense to your position. And as you know that from the start of this series, I have tried to take as much of an unbiased position as possible in regards to how the end of times is going to come together. With that, we have looked at a lot of texts together after we've moved into the actual Bible. Because uh, prior to that, you know, as you know, we were looking at these views from a, you know, from what society or, you know, the biblical groups have said, you know, whatever your particular camp is. <clears throat> and then we go into the Bible with that hermeneutic in mind. And so what I've tried to do is be as unbiased as possible in in trying to uh, relay that and talking about what it actually um, means and how can we come to this understanding from a biblical hermeneutic. 
with that said, we went into the Old Testament. We looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We looked at the the uh, account of the flood, and then we started to move forward in time through the uh, Old Testament. And we looked at various scriptures, and um, and we talked a ton about, you know, what it what some of this content is. Now, we didn't cover some things as I'm kind of reflecting back on. We didn't really go into the book of Joel too much, uh, the prophet Joel. And that's not a huge deal. We did cover some of the text from there in regards to the day of the Lord. Um, but I do want to make sure, guys, that this is not an exhaustive uh, podcast series. The show isn't dedicated to explaining the end of times. This show is not going to be always covering this topic. This is just a very long series that you as the listener have signed up for. And by that, I mean, when we were transitioning out of the attributes, this topic was the most voted on topic. And then when we got to the topic and we we decided on it, it was then decided that we should do as as in-depth study as we possibly can. Now, obviously, this whole series is going to take us a year to do. Um, I'm still envisioning 20 more or 25 more episodes, which will put us well over 52, 55 episodes for this whole series. That means this show will take well over a year. So it's still not exhaustive because it's literally about an hour each week that we are tackling particular pieces of scripture and writings and topics. So um, 52 hours in a nutshell, if you would, maybe 55, maybe a bit more, uh, depending on some of the show lengths, um, because I think the hell episode with Bible dingers was a fairly long episode. Some of them were a little bit shorter, right around the 35, 40 minute mark. Um, but just know that I'm trying to do is, you know, by myself single handedly here, giving you guys the most unbiased view and trying to relay exactly what is going on in Scripture in regards to the end of times. Because we can go and we can cherry-pick this text all day long. That's what we talked about last week. When If we were to just cherry-pick this text, we can make it say almost whatever we want it to. We can make it fit into any worldview or biblical worldview for that uh, that we want. We can say, oh, wow, Paul's really writing about this in these three verses here. But the fact of the matter remains is we don't get that behavior all throughout his letters. Or we can go to the Gospels and say, well, Jesus said in these three verses here, well, okay, so, but why doesn't he say it anywhere else? Or what's the full context to that? And that's what I've been trying to really dig into as we've moved into scripture is how can we understand the end of times from a biblical perspective by reading in the entire context of it? And I think what we've come to, uh, before we get into today's topic, I uh, kind of want a massive recap in just a few quick seconds here. The Old Testament always was pointing towards a coming Messiah. It wasn't necessarily looking towards the end of the world. There were some texts that talk about, you know, the end of times, you know, the, the ending of what people knew to be. Uh, the existence that they had lived in. Again, Joel's a, a book about that. The day of the Lord context, uh, the, a lot of that phrasing uh, used in the Old Testament points us to that. But they were always, in, in a larger part, were always looking towards the Messiah that was promised. That is 
kind of the type of eschatology we get in the Old Testament. Again, it doesn't, it's not exhaustive and it's not covering all of it, but it, it gives us enough understanding that, you know, what were they looking towards versus what we get in the New Testament? Because in the New Testament with Christ being here on earth now, we have entered essentially into the end of times now that Christ has given. So that means that Christ has lived, died, and has been resurrected and has ascended to heaven. The next piece, according to scripture, to happen is the ending of this world. That is the wiping away of sin. That is the establishment of the new heavens and new earth and the kingdom of Christ to reign for eternity. Now we can get into the schematics of, you know, uh, raptures and the seven-year tribulation and all that but we don't uh, necessarily see a lot of that behavior. But, you know, again, we haven't gotten into the book of Revelation in depth yet, but we will. So I'm kind of keeping that stuff in a little bucket bucket for you guys. Um, and, and we'll unpack it when we get there. So we, we are looking and, and actively anticipating the return of Christ. That is essentially the biggest piece of eschatology that the current Christian world is can hold on to collectively. Now, how we arrive at that point, obviously, is very different for each of us. Some of us are going to arrive to it via a rapture. Some of us are going to arrive to it that we're just waiting for the sky to crack open, as he tells us in the Olivet Discourse. Um, some of us are even in the post-millennialist group thinking that we will actively and progressively become more of a Christ-like you know, church and that will usher in the end of times. And if you want to understand more of those views, then look back into some of those episodes that we talked about those four major views. Now, as we have moved out of the Olivet Discourse and we started talking about Paul's eschatology last week, our biggest phrase that we hung on to, and we're going to dig into that more this week, is what Paul kind of always um, labels is the already but not yet. So Paul does not really give us a very clear picture of the end of times. And by that, I mean, we have fragments and we have some verses that point us to something, but Paul doesn't write and you know, any really in-depth ex- text that can point us to, um, to this, to this understanding of how the end of times will come. In fact, really the best clear picture we get is from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation and Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Those are two of the heaviest texts to walk through in regards to the end of times and the New Testament. And we're going to have to be very delicate when we get to the book of Revelation because we don't want to take it um, either as, you know, we don't want to take it too literally or we don't want to take it too symbolically uh, and, and where everything is an image or pointing us to something else, we have to understand it in, in the right context. And so we will be unpacking uh, that book into seven sections and we will do three shows per section. And so we should get about 21 or thereabouts episodes out of the book of Revelation. So we have still a lot more meat to go into, right? We're, we're barely touching the tip of this uh this massive steak we started to cut into uh, a couple of months ago on this show. 
Last week, I said we talked about Paul's eschatology, and we're going to look a little bit deeper into it today. We spent a lot of time looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to um, unpack that a little bit more today, and we're going to go into some of his um, other writings, and we're going to try and get us a better understanding of what Paul really is trying to correlate and understand that this too, as I said a few minutes ago, Paul doesn't give us this very clear picture. Instead, we get fragments across a lot of his letters. And in that, we've got a lot in uh, the book, First uh, Corinthians, and we've got some in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Those are big ones that people love to camp into. Uh, we're going to look at some stuff in Romans today. And then we're going to um, hopefully get through a few kind of other aspects of Paul's eschatology. Now, um, I was doing some research, and as I mentioned last week, this um, idea of uh, of Pauline theology, the Pauline eschatology, and how they kind of are nestled together, if you would, that there's not a lot of separation in it. Paul's take on the end of times is kind of unique in, in reflection, right? So I mentioned this book uh, written by Jahard Voss, and uh, he does a, an amazing walkthrough. But I got to admit, it is a very tough read. He uses a lot of Hebrew and a lot of Greek words, and he does not translate them. Uh, so it's difficult if you're a novice reader. And by that, I mean, it's tough for me. And because I'm not a Greek or Hebrew, you know, I'm not fluent in those languages. I can go and translate words to get a better understanding. And uh, but at the end of the day, I'm not fluent. And so I can't just look at a word and know what it means. Um, and, and unless you've really studied in depthly, I would be very hesitant um, to to pick the book up. But again, it's still a good read and you can read around it. Uh, and there's still a lot of good things in there that we might uh, try to use in next week's episode. And uh, but I, I found this essay, uh, and it's on um, Reform Reform or Reform Forum. I'm sorry. Uh, it was written by uh, the gentleman named Daniel. It was written a few years ago. Daniel is uh, has an MDiv from Mid America Reform Seminary and is currently in a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he serves as stated supply at Pumpton Plains Reformed Church in New Jersey. So he wrote this article. He's dug into this book. And I want to kind of highlight a few things that he wrote here um, because I think it's really it helps us to understand Paul's position as we unpack his uh, greater pieces here. So uh, I'm going to read a couple of lines here from this essay. But again, you can Google it. It's um, the title is the eschatology aspect of the Pauline conception of life. And I'll put this link in my bio because I think, uh, or in, in the show notes, because I think this is a very crucial essay to help understand that particular book more in depth. And it does show the complexity to Jahard's writings. Now, as a side note, I did use Voss's book on the Old Testament uh, as we went through some of that, um, some of those shows. Again, he writes... Uh, very, very high level. He's a very brilliant theologian. So not to downplay, but I, you know, us, because I, I, I personally 
find his book on Paul's eschatology to be tough to kind of just sit and read. It's you really have to have the mind set to do so. Um, and not to say that we couldn't or I can't, but I just don't have the capacity, at least in my current mind, to do so because of everything else going on in the my in, in my my world with running a ministry and doing these shows, being in seminary, you know, being a pastor, being a father and all that stuff. So if I were to just sit down as like and just dedicate like two or three days to reading it, I probably could and I'd make it through it. But he's he's definitely a brilliant man. And I really want to make sure we understand how and, you know, how smart he is. So this is a great article that uh, Daniel has written and. What he what Jahard is really taken on in this book is we before we kind of get into the rest of the the show here is his understanding um, and concepts of life. Now, uh, Voss will point us back to Genesis two, and that's where he says that the uh, that Paul draws from this ancient antithesis on which life stands opposite to death since the very beginnings of the race. In Genesis two, we are introduced to the two trees of destiny in which the polar forces of life and death clash, the tree of life and then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, The consequences of eating the second tree was certain death. And so Paul, if you read through Paul's letters, and it's not just surrounding his eschatology, but it really focuses all of this concepts on life and death. And so this is kind of this always going back and forth battle that we read in Paul's letters. It's the, you know, we were once dead, now made alive. It's death to life for the new believers. And so we get a lot of that in his writing. And so um, as we walk through, we see, obviously, we know that uh, Adam was given the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam fails. And so Adam becomes a type of the Christ. And Paul writes about that, that Adam was a type of Jesus. And uh, he fails. And yet the Lord does not. Christ does not fail because he is the perfect second Adam. So uh, Daniel continues down here. He says the eschatology and soteriology aspects are both fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and enjoyed by all who are united to him by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to read some scripture pieces as he's using Romans 6. Now, before I get to Romans 6, I want to make sure that we understand this piece because Paul's eschatology is is connected to his soteriology. The aspects are both fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. And what that means is this concept of already, but not yet. And so we start to question, well, what does that mean? And what that really means is that some of this stuff in terms of the end of times is already done for us. We've gone through this death into life, as Paul writes here in Romans, and uh, but then we're still waiting for the not yet, and that is the second coming of Christ. So Jesus is already doing a work through the Holy Spirit in us. He's already brought us from death into life. The only thing that we essentially will be waiting for is the resurrection of the new body if we pass before Christ returns. And if we don't, then we... St- are anticipating the sky splitting and Christ returning and his angels going out to collect uh, the elect. 
So here's what Paul writes here in Romans 6. We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's Romans 6, 4. But now that you have been freed from sin and have been become, you have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 6, 22 through 23. Interesting, again, in these texts here, and I'm going to side tangent on uh, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That fruit is, wait for it, wait for it. The fruit you get is essentially uh, the fact that you have been raised from death into life. You have the Holy Spirit. You have faith. And now... To its end, you have eternal life. Now, sanctification, a huge, hotly debated topic all of a sudden uh, on the Internet by all of our wonderful Internet theologians. Uh, I might do a live and or bonus podcast episode and talk about sanctification just for clarification on my end so you guys can know how I kind of take it on. All right, guys, so we'll talk about that on another episode. Anyways. What Paul's really getting at here is this concept of already, not yet. We have been buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you might too walk in the newness of life. I love that verse 6-4 because I think it gives us this picture of us going through life and then we have experienced this death uh, through baptism and we are raised anew. And that, again, people love to get into the debate on baptism. What is the purpose of baptism and uh, where and why do we hold on to it so dearly? Paul really doesn't give us a lot of text in baptism. Um, And in fact, Paul really wasn't one that went around and actively baptizes. He makes that pretty clear in 1 Corinthians that uh, he's not out to actively baptize, but he's out to uh, actively uh, profess the gospel to the Gentiles. And then I believe kind of the people that he, you know, would was in his small caravan, if you would, um, those who were his scribes and, and followers. And I use followers lightly, like those who traveled with him, Barnabas and that would do the baptizing. Anyways, that's just kind of a speculative piece. Um, there's, again, not a lot of scripture around Paul actively baptizing people, but he does use this language in Romans. And I and I think it's helpful to understand what he's trying to get at by this already and not yet concept. And so we see that here in Romans 6 and throughout the rest of his writings. So the Pauline conception of life does not belong to those whose existence is wholly caught up in the present age over which death reigns, but to those who have been raised in Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. So as we kind of stated here thus far in the last couple of episodes is Paul's writings are not aimed necessarily at those who are outside of Christ, but aimed at those who are in Christ, those who have been baptized and have been raised to this newness of life. And so as we start to unpack um, where he draws his theology from, we know that he uh, has spent a number of times uh, with the other apostles We know that he spent uh, a number, we know that he was discipled and has been taught. He was a uh, phenomenal 
Pharisee, if you would, of the Old Testament. He is, Paul is a very intelligent man. And so, uh, but I don't believe really in his writings, we see that he was positioning himself to really write about the end of times. He was more focused on going out and professing the gospel. And, and this is why I think as we look forward to who Paul was, and his kind of his mission work and how should we take on uh, his mission work, the mission of Christ, is the simple fact. Eschatology is secondary or even uh, tertiary doctrine. It could be, you know, it could be a couple levels deep or, you know, or down the ladder, if you would. Um, I don't believe it's anything of uh, highly importance outside of the fact that you should believe that Christ will return. That's the that right there is primary doctrine that Christ lived, died, was resurrected and will return. That is primary. Secondary is this. Well, how is he going to return? What are the you know, the what should the world be looking like and what are the environments and, and aspects and all that to make that kind of come through? All of that being secondary or you know, even further, like I said, further down the rung, I, I don't believe we as Christians should be sitting here getting so wrapped up in this. But I do think it is important for us to understand and to be having a, you know, basic understanding and hermeneutics of what Paul's writing about. And uh, and it helps us to peel back this layering that modern Christians can kind of wrap themselves into in regards to, well, oh, they're doing this in the Middle East and, oh, you know, the third temple's being planned and, oh, this red heifer was born. And, I mean, fair, uh, priests and the Jewish people are being trained with how to be temple priests again. I mean, it's just one thing after another that leads to fear and it leads to this um, fake idea that Christ is returning like within the next couple of months or a year or two. And so when we start to unpack a lot of this, it's helpful for us to understand kind of this idea that it's, it's to understand and know, but it's not for any of us to sit and cling to that it's going to happen in our lifetime because the apostles thought it was going to be in their lifetime. The early church thought it was going to be in theirs. Uh, and so on down the ringer. And we've had numerous false teachers throughout history come in and say that they have calculated the the date when the world will end and they create mass chaos and fear and it just falls apart. And so, as I've said time and time again, I really want to take this uh, this series and help explain some of this text. And so let's look at what Paul's got for us. As we start to go through this now, remember, I'm looking at um, this book written um, by uh, uh, Thomas Schreiner, and uh, it's called Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ, a Pauline Theology. And he uses um, he uses some towards the end of his book, uh, a pretty in deep view of Paul's eschatology and his uh, how he viewed the end of times and his eschatological approach. And really, Thomas does a fantastic job of trying to explain things from a very unbiased 
position. He's just trying to show you, you know, this is what we uh, get. And so we get to First Thessalonians. We talked about that last week, in the fourth chapter. Um, but he also has uh, chapter five in here listed. The believers live in an era before the demise of the last enemy is apparent. In First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen, the inexperienced believers in Thessalonica were distressed because of some of their believing uh, loved ones had died before the coming of the Lord. So we talked about that too, right? That some of these people had this. Uh, mindset that Christ was going to return like in this like time frame, right? Christ descended um probably argumentative around eighty between thirty and thirty-four. Somewhere in that time frame, maybe a couple years even earlier, some people argue that he ascended to heaven. And so this book was written uh right around fifty, fifty one AD. And so we're only 20 given years here after the ascension. And so some of these people are thinking Christ is going to return any minute. We are that final generation. And so they are distraught over the fact that people are still dying around them and they don't know what to do. And so that's why Paul's writing this uh, letter. And I want to read 14 through 18 again, uh, just so we have um, some clarification of what this text says. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, but about those who are asleep. Again, this correlating back to those who have perished uh, since Paul has come here and uh, has preached uh, that you may not grieve as others do, but uh, but do have no as others do not have no hope for since we believe Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So just these two verses. Paul's writing to help comfort those who have uh, loved ones who have passed away. Just because they're asleep doesn't mean they're going to miss the ticket. And I think sometimes, especially as they're trying to really understand all of this, you know, because this is literally the first time these people are hearing this gospel message. This is the first time they're hearing about uh, their Lord and Savior dying and raising from the grave and, and, and that he will return. And there can be... Uh, just as today, even though the gospel message has been going strong for 2000 years, even today, we have people who are really just confused in regards to the, the whole premise of the gospel message, but more so for these guys, in my opinion, because they've never heard it before. And so they are really worried that those, uh, their, you know, family members or loved ones who have passed away, uh, they will miss that ticket. They, they will miss you know, Christ returning, but Paul's saying, have hope. God will take care of those who have gone to sleep. Again, this is another, uh, kind of a nudge to those who, uh, believe in a soul sleep. Um, I think it's another verse in first Corinthians 15 that talks about it as well. We did a whole episode on death. If you want to go back and listen to that, that might help provide some clarification. So, uh, Thomas continues here. Apparently they were persuaded that those who were uh, deceased would suffer some disadvantage because they died before the second coming. It's kind of what I was just talking about. Identifying the precise reason for their grief is difficult and many guesses have not yielded any certainty. We know that they were paralyzed by sorrow and by the feeling that their deceased loved ones were at some disadvantage, but we do not know precisely why they felt this way. Uh, could their confusion stem from Paul himself? It is possible that Paul had not conceived of the possibility of Christians dying before the coming of the Lord. So that, again, 
this line, I think, really kind of hammers to some of why these letters were written with this idea of eschatology kind of penciled into it. Paul's out here proclaiming that Christ is going to return. Paul's out here slaving away at planting churches and teaching people. And so we we get that this could have been just a misconception from these people, these early churches. Well, my, my uncle or my dad or my mom or my sister, or my brother just passed away. My kid just passed away. Are they going to be at a disadvantage? You know, you're saying that Christ is going to come. He's going to take his, his people with him. Well, what about those who are asleep? What about those who have passed, those who are dead? How do we handle that? And so Paul's saying, you know, here, um, for since we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's trying to kind of stay ahead of this game uh, and, and comfort those who have grief. Again, context matters. And understanding the historical placement of these churches and the reasons why Paul's writing these letters and some of this, you know, misconceptions uh, can help because a lot of times people won't go back to the 13th verse. They might use it, but they don't usually. Um, What they do go to is verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, well, again, this verse again in 16 is supposed to comfort those who have passed. Then we, but then this is the, this is the ticket right to the rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up in the air with them. Right, right there. There's the rapture, ladies and gentlemen, I have found it. It is in, no, I'm sorry. It's not again. This is going back to what Jesus was talking about at the Olivet Discourse when he said he will send his angels out to gather the elect and those who are dead in Christ will come with them. That is it. Sorry to burst your bubble. I'm sorry. I just don't see how this is talking about a rapture or the secret rapture or anything like that. You can send me your hate mail. I don't care. All right. So let's look at, uh, let's get to chapter four. Five here, um, because Paul continues this kind of uh, verbiage here into the fifth chapter. I'm going to read verses one through eleven uh, because he's talking about the day of the Lord, and this again is another big issue that uh, people love to go into. And so let's unpack this for us now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whoever so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. 
I'm going to let a bit of pause there for a minute because there here is nothing that is suggesting any particular time frame. Jesus is, or Paul's saying here about the coming of Christ. He's saying that this is what is going to happen. Um, and I think verse three really kind of plays into this pretty heavily while people are saying there's peace and security. So while this is going on, this is when the sudden birth pains will come as, as Paul is noting here. It's, it's in that moment of when we think nothing's going to happen, when we think that Christ possibly couldn't return when we least expect it, right? That's what we're getting at. And then he goes on to talk about being sober and being vigilant. Now, he uses this language of not sleeping and let us keep awake and be sober. I can tell you this. I have had some terrible sleep patterns. And uh, but at the end of the day, we still have to sleep. Our bodies will rest. And I've said this, I think, a few times across the past few across these episodes in the show that it's not talking about literally staying up until you your body crumbles. You need sleep. Your body needs to sleep. But what it's saying is, is that he goes on to further clarify, but having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of uh, the helmet, the hope of salvation. So it's equipping yourself with the word of God. Paul really writes heavily about the uh, armor of God in Ephesians chapter six. So he's using this verbiage here. This is the first time we see it. And then further down the line in his uh, writings, he'll actually describe it more. Uh, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's not about staying awake until you possibly can't do it. Get your sleep, be sober, be vigilant, but we are to be equipped with the knowledge that we are not destined to wrath. So this is what Paul is really iterating to these people, because just a few minutes ago in his letter, he's talking about... Christ returning, and he's trying to comfort those who uh, are distraught over their loved ones passing. And then he gets into uh, the clarification of you know nobody's knowing, nobody knows the day or time, nobody knows when this is going to happen. We know that it's going to happen at a moment that is least expected. So just stay vigilant, be ready, equip yourselves, and. Continue to encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing so. So that is the premise to what Paul's writing here in uh, the end of four and and the beginning of chapter five. And then he gives you the final benediction and instructions. So to uh, close out his letter, like I said, there's nothing here that is uh, any different than anything we've already talked about anywhere else on this show. But we can easily read into these verses if we just pull them out of their context. Now we get to Second Thessalonians. Another form of overrealized eschatology surfaces in Second Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were persuaded that day that the day of the Lord uh, had arrived or was imminent, as uh, chapter two, verse two states, drawing this conclusion presumably because of their intense suffering. Uh, as indicated in the first chapter, Paul's warning uh, against deception and caution about other sources of information suggests that either a prophetic word or uh, an alleged apostle or an alleged epistle of Paul or both advanced the notion that the end was upon them. 
So this is one of the things that the early church often encountered, false people, false letters coming in and stirring up the church. And we get that in some of this writing. And this is where we get this man of lawlessness. Paul's trying to uh, kind of overcorrect this, if you would, and trying to stay ahead of this curve. So we're going to read the first 12 verses here in chapter 2, and we will unpack this for us. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Right there, we just talked about some of those who have come in the name of Paul or who have written in the name of Paul, um, declaring something that is a false truth. Paul continues, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Right? That's what he's saying, that uh, these people have saying, writing letters and coming into the church and into the towns professing that they have some prophetic word that Christ is going to be returning very soon. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Right? This is going back to Matthew chapters 24 and 25, as Jesus talked about. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, and uh, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Guess what? That is the abomination of desecration. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is a clarification that Paul has been in this church, planting this church, teaching these people long before this letter was written. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all the wicked deception for those who are uh, perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe which is false in order that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a lot in 12 verses. There's a lot in 12 verses. So we talked, right, uh, when we did that episode on the uh, the abomination episode, um, we reflected back to Daniel 9, um, and we dug into that. Uh, so we're going to look at some of these notes here and try to help provide some clarification of what Paul is saying here in Second uh, Thessalonians. And by the way, uh, we're at the 41-minute mark as we hit this show. I'm going to continue on because there's a lot of ground to cover, and I want to make sure we only have to spend three shows on Paul because uh, we, next week we're going to look at um, the judgment. Of, we're going to actually probably put a little bit more meat into this one. We're going to do the judgment of unbelievers, the future of Israel and Romans nine through 11. So we're going to look at all that because I think it kind of works itself all together. So this man of lawlessness exalts himself over the true religion of Christianity. And he is, he essentially makes himself his own religion. One that is man-made. Irenaeus, the antichrist shall be lifted up, not above him, Christ, but above those 
uh, which are indeed called gods, but are not. And uh, the temple of God, Paul could be using uh, the Jerusalem temple as a symbol of God's authority or rule. Uh, as he wrote this letter, as we said in AD 50, the temple had not yet been destroyed. So as Paul writes this, right, we have to understand the greater context to it, that uh, he obviously uh, is probably pointing himself to, you know, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which is still standing. And he continues to talk about this particular one exalting himself over uh, this, the people. Uh, and we know that this is essentially the activity of Satan. The lawless one is an agent of Satan while at the same time embodyingly and fully representing uh, the evil uh, that Satan is. Note the unholy anti-trinity, which depicts, uh, this is in Revelation 13 as a noted to, which depicts multiple manifestations of the satanic being, false signs and wonders, the parody uh, the Antichrist of the true uh, to the true Christ, uh, who did true mighty works and signs and wonders. So Jesus prophesied about the work of the evil one in Mark thirteen, uh, as we talked about in the Olivet Discourse. Those these evil and misleading miracles are indeed to draw people into this falsehood. So what we can get out of it is that the evil one will be doing all of these things to make himself look like he is in fact God in the flesh. And so, and so we pick that up right from when we talked about the abomination of desolation of desecration back in the Olivet discourse series. And so Paul is just highlighting some more of that connectivity that he has with the words of Christ. This isn't just Paul just throwing out random things. There is overlapping, um, understanding to this text. And this is what helps us when we get to these very difficult texts. This isn't just something that we, you know, like I said, pull out of the sky. There's not just something that Paul's writing and going, oh, this sounds great. This is, I'm going to bring them comfort, but then I'm going to talk about this random guy that nobody has talked about in scripture before. But in reality, we get it in Daniel 9 and we get it in Matthew 24 and 25, more or less in 24. But so again, Context matters. So that's what we're getting in Second Thessalonians in the second chapter. So I'm going to talk a little bit here um, of what Thomas is writing to provide some more clarification on Second Thessalonians. Paul assures his readers that the lawless one has not yet arrived because the restrainer hinders him from appearing. Again, when we got to that section in Matthew, we talked about it as being a future event. We talked that uh, this could potentially something that happens at any time. Um, and then there's also this notion that there are many antichrists who come throughout history, those who claim to be false teachers, those who hinder the gospel, those who uh, have some sort of authority, uh, whether it's a government or church authority, and they hinder the gospel from being you know, professed and moved into the country and into the world. Uh, many of them have come, but there is only one true lawless man. And that is the one who sits on the throne of God and declares himself to be God. Um, so he continues on Paul betrays little interest in what the lawless one will actually do. He informs us that the power behind the scenes is Satan himself so that the lawless one has the abilities to do signs and wonders and miracles. So we talked again about this back in the Olivet Discourse series. Again, there's this connectivity that we are seeing in Scripture. This isn't just random. So 
we have to um, build this out and really to get the full picture. Because again, if we were to just read this stuff at, 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 at right off the bat without having any understanding of what's going on elsewhere in scripture, and if we were to just do this like episode without having done prior episodes, we'd be in a whole different world here right now. We would be talking about a whole different setup instead of what Paul's doing to this church in Thess- Thessalonica is he's reassuring those who have passed. That is the purpose to these letters. A reassurance of those who have passed will, in fact, be raised with those who uh, go to Christ, who ascend to Christ when he comes back. Now, uh, some interesting dialogue comes up as Thomas continues writing is this knowledge of uh, did Paul change his mind? And so he continues here and he says some scholars have suggested that Paul's developed or changed his view regarding the future resurrection. When writing 1 Thessalonians, he clearly believed that believers will be raised from the dead upon Jesus's return uh, and not at their death. Some scholars maintain that Paul altered this view after experiencing his trial in Asia, as noted in first uh, and sorry, in second Corinthians. I'm going to read this second Corinthians chapter one. Verses 8 through 11, this is what Paul writes. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentences of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. There's that word, or I'm sorry, uh, God who raises the dead. He believed uh, he delivered us from such a deadly pit peril and will and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that we will that he will deliver us again. Uh, You also must help us by prayer so that may so that many will give thanks on our behalf and the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. It's a little tiny reading here on the screen. (laughs) Eyes are like uh, not what they used to be. And so I'm stretching to get all those words in there. So forgive me for stumbling. But uh, Thomas continues, he he began to realize that he would likely die before coming to the Lord. And thus, uh, he began to think that believers would be resurrected immediately upon death. Such a change seems to be reflected in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, uh, where upon the uh, dissolution of the earthly body, believers have, quote unquote, um, note that this present tense, a new body. Seeing a change in Paul's view of the resurrection, though possible, is not likely. Against it is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, for there we have seen the resurrection of believers is located at the return of Christ. The interval between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers is emphasized to correct the over-realization eschatology to the Corinthians. The resurrection of believers is located uh, at the last trumpet. Where did that come back from? Matthew, again, and Mark and and Luke. So Paul is, you know, some people want to argue that Paul's theology changes or shifts a little in his journeys. It doesn't. Uh, He stays firm in all of his positionings. He just sometimes words, words it a little differently. And if you read it on the surface without proper context, you get into this idea that this is a different Paul or a different you know, understanding of theology. Uh, and I, and again, I'm reading this out of this book because I really want to highlight this, 
notion of this resurrection, because that's what Paul really bases a lot of his theology on, is the future resurrection for believers. So Thomas continues, an investigation of 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, reveals no departure from the standard Pauline teaching on the resurrection. Our present body is compared to an earthly house that is slowly becoming dilapidated and will eventually be torn down. And the future body, on the other hand, is heavenly and eternal, for it is from God himself. Because of the weakness of our earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, longing for the day in which we will be clothed with our new bodies. That's what we talked a little bit about last week, is that Paul, is his whole position is around the resurrection of the of the believers. It's not necessarily aiming towards the this spe- spectacular move in um you know in the skies or these events that would happen around the world. Paul is really focused on the believer. And and I'm going to make this I'm going to kind of make this a, a, a take this position. And 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 I'm curious at how you the uh, the listener would receive this position. Paul is not writing from a theological ivory tower position when he writes to these churches. Paul's writing from a pastoral position, and as he does so, Paul is writing to comfort his um, these people in the churches we've seen in Thessalonica. His letters are to comfort those. Uh, he's defending positions in the church to Corinth as you know many false teachers and and the world has kind of croached in on this church. And so Paul is writing from a pastoral standpoint. So he's not going and aiming at this from a, you know, a high level theological ivory tower position. And that's, I think a brilliant way to kind of approach Paul's eschatology is that it's not, it doesn't go after a lot of these big pieces that we see elsewhere. The prophets in the Old Testament all talked about destruction and doom and the coming of the day of the Lord and things like that. Jesus himself, the son of God, talks about the events that will happen around the world. But Paul is really focused solely on his believers. Paul is going after this idea that you will be with the Lord when he comes. And however that happens, that's on the Lord. Uh, and we get that text elsewhere, obviously, that we know those pieces of the end of times because we have John's letter and we have the words of Christ. So we get this concept that Paul is going after in terms of comfort and reassurance to his believers. Now we get to uh, this letter at Philippians. Uh, the evidence of the Philippians is significant here as well, even in uh, even if Philippians was written during Paul's Ephesian or Caesarean imprisonment, in both cases, Philippians would have been written long before Paul's Roman imprisonment. Uh, the letter would be dated after writing 2 Corinthians. And it is clear here in Philippians 3, uh, verses 20 through 21, I'm going to read that, but our citizenship is in heaven, and if it uh, and for it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious, glorious body, but the power that enables him to uh, subject all things to himself by the power that enables him. So Paul's writing again with this idea that our citizenship is in heaven, and this is what Christians should be focused on, is that uh, the resurrection is true because Christ was raised from the dead and therefore will raise his church, those who have fallen asleep. Uh, that is the promise that Paul is bringing. Um, Thomas, though, continues, he says, however, that the transformation of our bodies will occur at the time of Christ's return. 
When Christ returns, he will transform the body of our humiliation and to be conformed to his glorious body. So Paul gives no indication here that our bodies will be changed immediately at death. Uh, He's pointing solely to the resurrection. There is no evidence in Paul's writings that at death this happens. Uh, What we are getting, in fact, is it all happening at the resurrection. And that's why I said it's good to know um, the kind of timeline of how Paul was writing, which we went over in last week's episode. It's good to know this bigger scale of uh, how Paul came about his letters, because then we can start to see how he unpacks his thinking uh, by each letter. Uh, Second Corinthians comes before Philippians uh, and Philippians comes before Romans. And so it's clear for us to see that even though some people look to look to second Corinthians and argue that Paul changed his theology around the resurrection, he doesn't in fact do so because he clarifies that again to a different letter in a different church. Paul just has a habit sometimes of rewording and kind of moving things around and it does sound at surface level to maybe contradict itself but greater context shows us especially in uh, the fifth chapter of second corinthians that it doesn't so we have this last piece here that we're going to talk about with paul's view of death um, in this intermediate state and uh we're going to kind of look at this really quick as we wrap up this show. And then next week, we're going to look at uh, what does Paul think in the unbelievers? Uh, and then we're going to talk about um, the future of Israel as well out of the book of Romans heavily. So uh, a less important question that we come across is whether Paul believed in an intermediate state between believers, death and resurrection. Paul often speaks of the resurrection since that is the goal in which he was uh, in which believers are destined. This is what we've been stating this entire time. Paul's not writing to really hype hype up the the end of times. Paul is writing from a pastoral position to bring assurance and to bring truth and knowledge to his churches that he has planted, and he is bringing reinforcements in 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 the realm of assurance to the believers of what will happen when they die, and to comfort those who have already lost people. Uh, We can understand why a focus on the intermediate state should be lacking precisely because it is an intermediate and temporary. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the believers in Thessalonica are concerned about whether deceased members uh, of the community are at a disadvantage of the Lord's coming, Paul says nothing about an intermediate state. Uh, Our text seems to indicate a belief uh, of the intermediate existence, and another would be an interrupted to support their view. Uh, I'm sorry, and another could be interpreted to support such a view. So when Paul reflects on the possibility of death in Philippians 1, 19 through 26, he finds death preferable because he would be with Christ. Uh, One could possibly say that he anticipates being with Christ at his resurrection. Um, And it is natural, though, to conclude that Paul would be with Christ immediately after his death. And he seems to find an instantaneous benefit in death. So this is, again, going back to the discussion on the episode of death, because Paul has numerously written about what will happen with, uh, with, with when his passing comes. Is he going to be asleep and have to wait for the resurrection? Will he experience immediate bliss, um, or, you know, immediate uh, temporary bliss until the resurrection, and then he gets his glorified body? Uh, 
Paul really points more to to the latter, that he will be with Christ upon his death. And that's why he writes that uh, his death would be a benefit because he could be then with Christ. Um, the soul sleep is kind of a notion that uh, comes from some of this text here from First Thessalonians and some of the Old Testament uh, as well, that when you pass and you are um, uh, essentially dead and in the grave, you have no concept of time, but your soul is sleeping. It is temporarily unaware of everything going on around you. And you won't be aware until the resurrection when Christ calls you to him. And you have no concept of time. You have no concept of anything. So literally, uh, the argument could be stated that when you die, literally the next thing you will know is Christ commanding you to get up. Uh, so whether you believe in a uh, soul sleep, an intermediate state, or you know the eternal bliss, um, really death in itself is hard to explain from a scriptural standpoint because all three of them could be argued and all three of them could be defended successfully from scripture. And so the only way I can ever convey it to believers from a pastoral standpoint, and I think what Paul's writing here is when we die, the only thing we will know next is Christ commanding us to get up and come with him. And so that's the easiest way I can talk about uh, this last piece of Pauline theology here is around his um, view on death. And we, again, talked about it pretty heavily on our episode of death. So go, make sure you go back and listen to it. I really stress that, right, as we've gotten into this show that it is important to recap and re-listen to some of these episodes because, as I said, in those episodes, we will reflect back on them from time to time. And I think this episode, we've gone back to quite a bit of those shows. Uh, so... Guys, that's going to wrap the uh, first or part two, if you would, of, of the Pauline eschatology. And again, we've looked at first, second Corinthians. We've looked at uh, Ro uh, Romans eight. I think I was going to mention that. And I want to go back and make sure I do cover that a little bit. Um, and we talked about the uh, um, first and second Thessalonians and uh, and therefore so. I'm just looking back at my notes because I had mentioned it, I think, early in the show that we were going to tackle it. I'm trying to see where I had it lined up. Oh, okay, so um, Romans 8, I'm going to kind of read this little section here I got. Not all of God's enemies are subjected to him and will be vanquished, as 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28 states. The day when God is all, uh, the day when God, quote unquote, is all in all has not yet arrived. Believers groan about the body of uh, humiliation is Philippians three twenty one states anxiously awaiting a body that will be conformed to the glorious body of the resurrected Christ. Redemption is not yet fully realized for the body is dead because of sin. That's stating out of Romans eight. So that's where I was picking that up. I was looking at my notes and I had seen, I had Romans eight in here. Uh, eight ten uh, says for if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. But the promise that the same one who raised Christ will raise our body bodies fortifies us uh, in the interval. As Romans 8.11 states, For the spirit who raised Christ or uh, raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And then he goes on to state first and second Corinthians. So the, again, this notion comes back to this idea that Paul is not solely focusing himself on this, the end of times. Paul's mission was to plant churches 
and to preach Christ. And in that, he did come to junctions where he had to bring comfort and assurance about the resurrection. And Paul's mission work all was focused around Christ dying and raising from the grave because he even states in 1 Corinthians that if Christ didn't raise from the grave, then we, above all people, should be um, pitied. So Paul's main focus, as I've stated over and over again, is not around the end of times, but is solely focused around his believers, around bringing them assurance and comfort to those who have had family members and uh, people in their church pass away. And Paul's positioning of his theology is solely focused around the person and nature of Jesus Christ. And that is, again, the big focus to the end of times is what is going to happen when we reach that that mark. And, you know, what are the events leading up to it? And we talked, I think, pretty heavily about it in the Olivet Discourse. Those were the words of Christ himself. These are the things that will happen. So we've well over the hour mark. Um, I am at a point, I think, of uh, happiness now that we have walked through a lot of this teaching. We've looked at a lot of this text um, that Paul writes here in his first uh, few letters. And uh, I hope that we have started to unpack and kind of really relay what it is that uh, uh, Christ is doing here and what is Paul doing with that knowledge. And so, you know, we just have to go back and look at in greater context to what Paul's actually trying to get across as his message. Don't cherry pick your text because you're going to fail every single day of the week. You know, context, context, context is what matters. And understanding not just even these few verses, but the whole scope uh, helps us to understand and reasons why Paul's writing these letters. Why would Paul make some notion in First uh, Thessalonians 4? verse 17 around a rapture when that's not in anywhere else and really in his writings around, you know, believers being caught up with him. So we have to, again, fill all of these cracks and crevices with proper context so we can have a firm foundation to stand upon. So ladies and gentlemen, that is going to conclude this week. Uh, We will take on part three and look at uh, the judgment of unbelievers, and we are going to look at Paul's future with Israel, and uh, we will be spending a lot of time in Romans 9 through 11 and how that plays out. And after next week, we are going to spend a week um, or two possibly looking at First Peter, maybe? No. One of Peter's writings. i got to get the right text down. We're going to look at Peter's writings, and we're going to look at the book of Jude. Uh, And then we're going to wrap up everything and then we will get into uh, Revelation. So that is that for the show today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, uh, as I didn't even say anything at the top of the show, but this is a listener supported show and you can join us on Patreon as we have a growing family. And I'll tell you what, these people are amazing. We, uh, as I record this episode on a Wednesday, Tuesday afternoon, we did uh, a 40 minute discussion on justification and, uh, and death, essentially talking about those who uh, have committed suicide and how that affects them. That is an exclusive video conversation with the patrons only. And uh, actually right now I'm filming this uh, on camera so that way they can watch me go through all my bloopers and they can laugh at my uh, ridiculousness as I have recorded this episode for your ears. They can watch me do it. And that is an exclusive piece. So there's so much that I 
turn and give back to them in hopes that they enjoy and uh, get more out of this ministry. So so for as low as a dollar a month, you can come alongside and join this growing family. Uh, as I record this episode, I'm watching my phone because I'm seeing myself. I'm seeing all of the conversations going on in our uh, Instagram chat group. And all these people are continuously talking with each other. It has been a tremendous family that has been formed through this ministry. And you can join and jump into that and just uh, get to know some of these, some of the most wonderful people I've gotten to know. I love every one of them dearly. And so thank you for supporting this ministry. And uh, remember that this is the, the bread and butter to what we're doing is to get the word of God out. So if you don't want to join the Patreon, um, ACAST now has the ability to, you can do one-time donations. Uh, and there's that, they put a little commercial now at the front of the show uh, and you can follow that instructions. And even still, if you don't want to do anything financially, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm not here for the money. I'm here to cultivate a community and family. And in that, um, you can just like the show, share it with your friends and family and church and all that. Uh, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. And if it gives you that opportunity, make sure you subscribe to it so you get weekly reminders um, when the show drops. So, guys, thank you so much. That is the uh, Pauline part two. I don't know what I'm going to title it yet, but we'll get something out of it. And uh, I'm out. I'm going to go on a walk because it is crazy nice outside. It's like 50 some degrees. It is gorgeous. And then I got to go prepare for Lent service tonight. And we're going to go through the Apostles' Creed. So, guys. Uh, until next Friday, God bless. Take care. Have a great weekend. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.